This morning, I am speaking with a man who lives in the same universe I do. We're still stuck in the 80s. We are talking about the third installment in his Raised on the 80s series, 30-plus unexpected life lessons from the movies and music that define pop culture's most excellent decade. Chris Clues, how are you today? I'm doing great, RC. Thank you so much for the megaphone, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Listen, you know, I'm still stuck in the 80s. You know, apparently you're still stuck in the 80s. So, you know, th- let's be honest. Everyone talks about the 90s being the last great decade. The, la- the 90s was the mopiest decade there was till about 97 when pop music came back. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned the 90s because I talk about, people ask me, why 80s? Like, why the 80s? Why is the 80s pop culture still resonating? And I feel like it was the last decade where pop culture wasn't manufactured. So, in other words, there was a lot of experimentation going on. I talk about it being kind of like somebody took a glitter bomb, threw it against the wall. It exploded into all of these wonderful colors. And that was all the different genres of music and movies that came out at the time. Obviously, the fashion, which thankfully was left in the 80s for the most part. Uh, minus vans, of course, which are, which are totally awesome. Uh, but I talk about that. If you, if you go back and you think about... You look at 80s pop culture. There was, as I mentioned, all this experimentation going on. But then as we moved into the 90s, I will call the mid-90s and onward to today, everything feels very manufactured. Like, they're going to spend a lot of money creating it. So, mm-hmm. of course, they're going to hammer us over the head until we like it. Right. And in the 80s, they just kind of threw stuff out there and said, do you like this? And we'd say, yeah, we want more of that. And they said, okay, great. And if we didn't like it, they went on to something else, which is why we had all those one-hit wonders as well, I believe. Well, but there's all that. But you, you mentioned stuff like pop culture and throwing it at the wall. I remember the WWF, which is WWE today, getting in bed with MTV and going, hey, we're going to bring in Cindy Lauper because Captain Lou Albano was in the music video with her for Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And we're going to do this rock and wrestling thing. And then, you know, I could buy a Run DMC cassette and then turn around and get the Guns N' Roses album three days later and still have that crossover in my record collection. That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, Cindy Lauper, one of my favorites, uh, honestly. And you mentioned Run DMC. Run DMC and Aerosmith, right? I mean, how that combination really changed music forever in terms of that kind of rock, hip-hop combination. So there was a lot of that that going on as well. And you mentioned wrestling. You know, I'm going to make you a little bit jealous here. I had a chance to meet Andre the Giant. Okay, now I hate you. (laughs) I I met Andre the Giant, and uh, it was awesome. There is a picture somewhere. I am still trying to locate it. But I did do have, or I did have his autograph. I actually um, uh, had a little acquisition of it from a friend who who was a huge wrestling fan and needed an Andre the Giant autograph for his collection. That's incredible, man. And so, you know, your first two books were talking about you know, business lessons that we can learn from the 80s, and now you're going into moral and ethics that we could have learned from the, from the time period. You know, why the shift from finance to ethics? Yeah, so the first two books really focused on, on workplace culture overall. So there, was, there were a lot of lessons about kind of, um, you know, what we can do to better, be better people. It just was designed for inside the workplace. And I took this one and went outside and said, what are some of the lessons that we can learn for life from these great movies and one great musician who loved the color purple. And I think part of it was because there is such a 
that, you know, our workplace and our lives are so integrated. I mean, it's a big part of what we do, our careers, as you know. Yeah. Uh, we spend a lot of time on them. So I looked at it and I said, you know, there, there is this obvious crossover between the workplace and life. And so maybe it would, it would be cool to do this book on life lessons. And I had a lot of fun writing it because I get to tell stories about me when I was, you know, in, in my youth and some of the ridiculous things that I did that all drive towards these lessons for each one of the chapters. And more, more importantly, before we get back to the book, I have to ask this question so we get it out of the way. Has Adam Goldberg sent you a cease and desist letter at this point <coughs> for getting in his 80s nostalgia lane? <laughs> no, he has not. Um, no, absolutely not. You know, uh, I, I love what Adam Goldberg did, and obviously it's so nostalgic for me watching the show. And I think, honestly, for me, the best part of that show, just to stay on that show for a second, the best part of that show is at the end when he shows the actual video recordings that they did as kids because my, my buddies and I had a camcorder as well, and we made a really bad movie called California Bones instead of Indiana Jones. And uh, I, I can't find the copy of it. It's probably best for the world. That I, that I haven't been able to locate it, but uh, yeah. So that, that's my favorite part of that show. Yeah. Chris, you take us through these movies and music and everything that goes along with it. Uh, you know, I was a child watching cartoons in the 80s, and, you know, yes, they were half-hour cartoons, but we also had the end cap, you know, two-minute moral lesson at the end. What makes you, th- you know, why do you think we deviated from that? Was it because we got rid of advertising for toys and cartoons and then started advertising for pharmaceuticals in the 90s? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I, I would say, you know, I think when I look back at 80s pop culture and, and I, I, I talk about the stories, I feel like, uh, for better or for worse, the stories tended to be simpler. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of rolled over to the cartoons as well that I remember uh, eating my Captain Crunch Berries and uh, Boo Berry and all of Frankenberry, by the way, that have all, like, come back to the shelves. I think in the last two months they just released them again. And uh, remember eating those and, of course, watching the last Olympics on prime time, if you remember uh, that event as well. I think they were just – I think the stories were just simpler. Again, for better or for worse, that's probably what it was. And so because it was so simple, everything around pop culture was fairly simple. There were some com- complex issues that movies dealt with. I mean, Fast Times did a great job of dealing with – you know, societal issues do the right thing, obviously, you know, huge impact on society. But overall, the movies tended to be a little simpler with the storylines. You know, you mentioned the purple purple one earlier, and in Chapter 4, you have an entire chapter dedicated to Prince and Suzanne Vega. You know, yes. what was the research like for that and coming into putting it into its own entire chapter of giving us a life lesson from them? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that one up because... This was an incredible uh, lesson, Prince and Suzanne Vega. So Prince at the time was the king of music. And, you know, we talk about Michael Jackson being the king of pop and he can have that moniker, but Prince was the king of music. And Suzanne Vega, like, I knew her because I was watching John Hughes movies and she had the song Left of Center on Pretty in, on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. You know, I listened then, to that song three days ago. What's that? I listened to that song three days ago. Oh, did you really? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's timeless. And she's timeless, by the way. Her music is unbelievable. At the time, though, you think about Prince being just this mega world star, global star. And Prince, uh, and Suzanne Vega was this alt singer. She's on college radio. Again, she had the song on, on uh, Pretty and Pink soundtrack. And then she came out with a song called My Name is Luca, mm-hmm. which when we were talking about, you know, simple messages, this was not a simple message. Very, very, you know, serious song about uh, child abuse and 
And my name is Luke. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. I'm not going to sing it because people right. will just kind of get rid of the interview now. But <laughs> <laughs> I'd be doing a great disservice to the great Suzanne Vega. Prince heard the song. Now, this is 1987. He's so moved by it that he pens a handwritten note to her. And you can look this up on Google You'll see if you just type in Prince and Suzanne Vega. And the handwritten note was, Dear Suzanne, Luke is the most compelling piece of music I've heard in a long time. There are no words to tell you all the things I feel when I hear it. I thank God for you, Prince. And it's just one simple letter like that that just sets the ball going for everything. Yeah, and I right. And so this note, I looked at this note and I thought, wow, this is just... There's three lessons that we can get out of this note. There's probably more, but three that I focused on. The first was about leadership, how, you know, Prince was on the biggest stage in the world, yet he was willing to share it with somebody else. And this idea that leaders share the stage of success, rulers keep everybody below it. And he saw her doing something great. He said, hey, greatness, I see you. There's room up here on this stage for you. And he wanted to let her know that. Whereas rulers, when they get the stage of success, they tend to keep everybody below it. They don't want people up there sharing the spotlight with them. Leaders share the stage. The second thing that we got out of that was encouragement doesn't cost a thing. All of us today can go out and encourage somebody that needs it. And if you got, you know, think about if you got a handwritten note from the person in your profession that you looked up to the most that said, hey, basically, like, hey, I see you doing great things. Keep it up. Yeah. Certainly would give you a boost of self-confidence and encourage you to keep going down that path that you're going. Absolutely. And the third thing he taught us was that the handwritten note is a lost art. <laughs> it really is because... You know, if we go, you know, I'm going to harp on the 90s just a little bit, but remember when email first came out and everyone was starting to get it in the mid 90s, you know, oh my God, it was so exciting to get an email. And then, you know, everyone f forgot about the regular handwritten letter. And now when we get like a Christmas card or a holiday card and someone actually writes something in there, it's a lot more heartfelt than it is just getting an evite to something. A hundred percent. I you know email works. Obviously, email is great because it's quick and we can get you know answers quick uh, quickly. But the reality is that handwritten note is it's so rare nowadays, and it does go a really long way towards making a difference. That that few minutes that you take to to write something out and stamp it and put it in the mail makes such a huge difference. You know, in chapter seven, you go into the movie Field of Dreams, which is a heart wrenching film of loss of if I could have just one more day with my dad the whole build it and they will come aspect to the point that they're still using that field in major league baseball games during the preseason. Like what does that say? Not only to the film itself, but to the message of the movie. Yeah. I think again, I go back to this, this eighties pop culture and that what was happening during that time and the types of films and pop culture that was made that is still resonating in some instances, 42 years later from 1980. Now, Field of Dreams came out in 89. Uh, so, but still, we're talking about, what, 33 years ago that this movie came out. And here they are, to your point, playing Major League Baseball games there. And I think it says something to the storytelling in the 80s. And it's not to say that there isn't great storytelling happening today. But there were some really great stories told in the 80s. And anytime you take Hollywood and you put Hollywood and baseball together, it's usually magic whether it's humorous like Major League or it's, you know, serious like The Natural or Field of Dreams, for example, uh, I think that you see that. And if you see it playing out, and I would imagine that this is going to go on for, you know, as long as well past the time that we're gone, they're probably still going to be playing baseball games at that field. Yeah. And, I mean, like you said, 33 years later, well, let's put it 34 years because, of you know, they had to film it first. So, really, 34 years later, they're still playing baseball on that diamond. 
Yeah, that's actually a very good point. And, you know, listen, you put James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones is in a movie. It's going to be a classic, and it's going to be something that people watch forever. And it doesn't matter whether it's Field of Dreams or Sandlot or anyone else that he did, any other movie that he did, it's going to be a classic. Yeah, what do you tell – I mean, we have everything that's going on right now with the uh, with the world falling apart and, uh, you know, how we're kind of reliving – um, what's his name? Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. You know, is that going to be something that pops up in the fourth installment of these books? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really try to focus on the positive. Uh, my goal is really for people to, when they read my books, to, to if you lived in that decade, to feel nostalgic for it and to remember it and enjoy it and embrace it. And also learn something from these movies that really were built to entertain us first and foremost and they still do um, but actually look back and say wow I can really learn something from these characters in these movies that I didn't really think about and for people that are younger that didn't live through the 80s but maybe just enjoy pop culture or having a resurgence of the, you know are really enjoying the resurgence of the 80s because of the movies are shows like Stranger Things uh, I would say that again this is the kind of I've always believed and thought that what I want from entertainment, what I want from writing is really to take me away from whatever's happening in my daily life, um, whether it's impacting me individually or, or us as a community or as a world. I really feel like I want to do, be able to do that. I want to be able to take you away from all the things that are happening and just to be able to enjoy the few minutes or the couple of hours that you spend that day reading part of my book. I hope that you come away learning something, that you're entertained, and that you laugh a little bit at my expense. Because self-deprecating humor is the best humor, and there's plenty of it in this book. That is very East Coast of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I grew up on the East Coast. Well, so, Born and raised in Baltimore and uh, moved to Florida years ago. All right. So now I have to ask you the ultimate 80s East Coast question. 5.0 or IROC? Well, I had neither. Uh, I actually had a... If you had a choice, yeah. but... <laughs> yeah, I had a 1977 Delta 88 Oldsmobile. Okay. Um, but <laughs> if I had a choice, probably an IROC, because for me, it just represents the 80s so much more. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we've become lifelong friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just... I tell people, you know, what's funny is that I... You know, when we think about 80s pop culture and why younger generations know so much about it, and I say, well, you know, the difference, of course, is that they, you know, you see something, you're 23 years old, you watch Stranger Things, you hear a song, but, you know, let's say it's, you know, whatever, we were talking about Pretty in Pink, you hear the Pretty in Pink song, you can go down this rabbit hole just by typing in Pretty in Pink, and it'll, it'll introduce you to all these, all these different musical groups, different types of music, movies, because there was a movie Pretty in Pink, and there was a song Pretty in Pink, and then there's this guy, John Hughes, who did all these movies, and all of a sudden, you just know all of this stuff about 80s pop culture. For me, or for anybody that was in the in, in Generation X, if we wanted to learn something about a previous generation, we either had to ask our parents, which we weren't doing at 14 years old, or we had to go ask the guy who was sitting on his eye rock, uh, <laughs> likely with a mullet, in a jeans jacket, with a Led Zeppelin patch, smoking a cigarette, and say, hey, what's Led Zeppelin? Right. You know what I'm not doing? I'm not asking that guy. <laughs> I might get my ass kicked. I don't know. Like, it could, be, it could go one of two ways. So, yeah. I got you. You know, as a wrestler, I do have to make mention that I am thrilled that you mentioned Vision Quest as Chapter 2 and the lessons that we can get from Vision Quest. Yeah, I love Vision Quest. It's one of my top five underrated 80s movies mm -hmm. that I just think, you know, again, um, for those of you out there who love Jake Ryan, 
you get another bite of the Jake Ryan apple in Vision Quest as well, because Michael Shoffling plays uh, uh, Matthew Modine, Lotus Wayne's character, plays his best friend. And so I love that. By the way, I never had kids, but if I did and I had a son, his name would be Loudon, because I just think it's one of the coolest names ever. (laughs) You know there's a band named after him, by the way. I do know this. Yeah, actually, I do know this. Rob Benedict, then. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So so you want to know about the lessons really quickly? Yeah, please. Um, One of the yeah one of the big lessons in that the in Vision Quest is the idea about the minutes that we're given, and so uh, it's not the minutes that we're given. It's it's the it's what we're willing to give to those minutes. And so what I mean by that is, if you remember, there's for those of you that have not seen Vision Quest, at least Google. Elmo Vision Quest monologue, and you'll get this about a minute and a half monologue by Elmo. You know, kind of a one of the better characters in uh, in the movie. That's kind of a bit player, but he has this incredible monologue, and he's talking about the idea of the six minutes in wrestling. And so I applied that to life, and I said, you know, basically, you can make your mark. You can mark the time or make your mark. And so many of us go through life marking the time, and that's okay. We have holidays, birthdays. These are all important things to mark. But Loud Swain realized at 18, at the very beginning, you hear he says this, that he, you know, he wants to do something. He feels like he hasn't done anything in his life. And this idea of making your mark. And by the way, that doesn't have to be that everybody knows you by one name, like Prince. It could be making your mark in your community, your local community. What are you doing to give back? Is there something that you can do to help in the community with your family, with your friends? Just making that mark wherever it needs to be made. And that, that's what I mean by that. You know, that's a great life lesson that I think people have forgotten. Um, to put it in modern perspective, do you think that we've gotten so far away from everything that we want to um, talk instead of listen? Yes, I think. Well, that, see, it's interesting because I, I think that what's happened, you know, technology is amazing and it allows us to communicate all over the world. But it also allows us to communicate uh, not face-to-face if we don't want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And also we can turn off our communication quickly when we're, not, when we're not talking face-to-face with somebody. So if you're texting with someone, you just stop texting. No. You know, if you email somebody, you just stop emailing. But when you're actually sitting down with somebody and you're having a conversation or you're at a lunch table or you're with a group of friends, it's kind of tough to, like, turn everything off. <laughs> and so, yeah, I do think that there's – we are all kind of, like, talking to each other instead of – uh, listening to each other, mm-hmm. and there's a Dead Poet Society. I, I actually is in the book as well, and I talk about the idea of bubbles mm-hmm. and looking at things from a different perspective. And that's what John Keating, Rob Williams' character, does when he stands up on top of his desk uh, and he says to the kids, "You know, I stand up here to look at things from a different perspective." And uh, and I think that's a really important thing that we all need to kind of get back to is understanding everybody's perspectives. I, I say if you're like, you know, somebody who gets your coffee at Starbucks every morning, go get your coffee at Dunkin' Donuts with that crowd one day. If you're at Dunkin' Donuts, go get your coffee at Starbucks with that crowd another day. Just just to see, you know, to, to get out of that little bubble that you're in. Something small like that can make such a big difference. You don't have to travel, you know, necessarily travel to another country, although that's great if you, if you have the means to do that. You can literally go from Dunkin' Donuts to Starbucks, and you'll see, you'll, 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 you'll immerse yourself in a completely different crowd. You know, something that I love that you do in this book is that you don't keep it in like a John Hughes theme. We mentioned Vision Quest. You meant, we talked about Field of Dreams. You brought up Dead Poet Society, which is an instant classic from when it first came out. And then all of a sudden, one movie that's long forgotten except for the Beach Boys song Kokomo, you know, in Cocktail... 
and then Roadhouse make the final cut. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Roadhouse for my money, like I listen, if somebody said to me, you can you can have a time capsule, an 80s time capsule, and in that time capsule you can have one 80s movie. And I know a lot of people would probably say, oh, well, you, yeah, 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 Raiders of Lost Ark, or you put E.T., you put these kind of, like, classic 80s movies. For me, it's Roadhouse. I would have Roadhouse in there because it is the quintessential 80s movie in so many ways. Even simple things like when, when she's stitching him up and she says, you know, do you want some Novocaine? He said, pain don't hurt. <laughs> There's, that line cannot be delivered anywhere but the 80s and really can't be delivered by anybody but Patrick Swayze. Yeah. You know, and it's sad we lost them, but but you're absolutely right with, with that line. And then if you go into Cobra, you know, crime, you know, crime is the disease, and I'm the cure, and just stuff like that. So it's amazing. I mean, that's yeah. that's what I thought earlier when they made it. It was so simple, yeah. and so when things are simple, you get these simple lines of dialogue. But if the right person is delivering it, it becomes classic. And I think with Roadhouse, and you mentioned Cocktail as well. Cocktail has some really great lessons. Again, another underrated 80s movie with Elizabeth Shue and Tom Cruise. I mean, you know, two two superstars. Yeah. And it really went underrated. And, of course, you mentioned Kokomo. And don't worry, be happy. I always tell people, yeah. if, you, if you haven't seen Cocktail, I can assure you, if you've ever been to the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico, you have heard the two songs that were most prevalent in Cocktail, which is Kokomo and Don't Worry, Be Happy. You know, I, I will throw in a personal anecdote with that. When I saw the Beach Boys, John Stamos played the bongos on Kokomo on stage with them. So, like, it went full circle for me. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's really, I, it's hard to, there were some songs in the 80s where you just think, why does this song always stick in my head? Because that was not the music that I listened to. I was listening to a lot of alternatives. Mm-hmm. But there was so many songs, like Jefferson Starship, We Built This City, I have to bring it up. Right. You know, it comes on and you think, oh, my God, how did this song become so popular? But all of a sudden, later in the day, you're still singing it. It's very weird. And um, and Cocktail is just a, is a great movie. There's a great scene in the movie where uh, they're talking about, I won't tell you the whole scene here, but essentially it's really about entrepreneurship and taking risks. And the idea that, you know, he says we're surrounded by millionaires because they're picking up different things off the table. The toothpick, the toothpick wrapper, the shoelace, the plastic tie on your shoelace that she calls a flugel binder. Mm -hmm. And she tells him your flugel binder is out there. And this is a really great conversation, a really great great lesson about kind of going for it Mm -hmm. and uh, and pursuing your passion. Yeah, I I do want to touch upon something before we we get back to the next chapter that I want to mention. Um, you you bring up the fact that Jefferson Starship did We Built This City, and it was listed as the worst song of the 80s. Yet, I will, I will attest to this. If Foreigner or Ario Speedwagon had put it out, it would be a beloved song. But because of the je- legacy of Jefferson Airplane coming into Jefferson Starship, that's why people hate on it so much. Completely agree. Yeah, I would even go as far to say if Air Supply put it out, it probably would have been um, more well received. You know, forty years later, I completely agree. Can we touch on the music real quick? Because, Absolutely. Um, in my books, each one of the chapters, I kind of take you back to the month and the year that that movie came out. We talk about the pop culture, the music, the movies, the television, just to kind of set the scene. And one thing that was great about '80s music, and I think again why it's having this resurgence, and why you see, you know. Uh, Guys like The Weeknd and Dua Lipa, Dua Lipa, how they're they're actually like you know bringing '80s themes back into their music. So, 
in the 80s, if you go back and you look at any top 40, just choose a month, a week, and a year. It doesn't really matter. What you're going to see in your top 20, you're going to see a Motley Crue next to a Run DMC, next to a Debbie Gibson, and then we'll throw in like a Depeche Mode and maybe a Kenny Rogers and a Christopher Cross, and then Prince. (laughs) So you have all these different genres of music all together. And that, you know, I mean, that, that, I'm not sure that that's ever going to happen again. But if you go back and look at the top 40 charts, you'll definitely see it. Yeah. Well, Chris, at some point, you and I are going to have to go shopping for parachute pants. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> Although, I, I don't know that I'm going to wear them, but I'll certainly shop for them. Yeah. <laughs> what, 180s pop culture reference. See, I don't want to give away too much of the book because I want people to read it as well, but I want us to also go on this 80s nostalgia trip. You yeah, know, that's great. I, I, listen, I love talking about it, so whatever you want to do. You do realize there's a resurgence of the guitar. I did not realize that. Go to Guitar Center. Go yeah. to Guitar Center, and you will see guitars. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to check that out. <laughs> I mean, where else can we go with this? It's just everything's coming back. Yeah. It's, it's spectacular. So long as the fishnet T-shirts don't come back, I think we'll be all right. Yeah, it's the fashion overall. I mean, Vans, you know, Vans are amazing. And, of course, they had been around for 15 or 16 years before they really exploded across the country. I mean, they were, you know, primarily a West Coast regional brand, right? And then Jeff Spicoli wears them in Fast Times. And I actually have a great picture of me in the book when I was 12 or 13 wearing those checkerboard Vans because I saw Spicoli wearing them. And the only reason I got to see Spicoli wearing them is because I bought a ticket to E.T. and I snuck into Fast Times. <laughs> it was well worth it. That is definitely an 80s and 90s trait is buying a ticket for one movie and sneaking into the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and I did it multiple times. So that was probably my best swap ever. Yeah. Well, I live about five minutes away from the Van's office. Oh, you do? And they did a documentary about Peter Van Dorn, the, the co-founder of Van's. And the way the checkerboard Van's came about was skaters were drawing the design on the shoes, and he just said, all right, let's make a pair. Really? That's how it came about, yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, I love Vans. They're, yeah. they're one of my favorite brands for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but, yeah, they're, they're amazing. Yeah, I ran, I ran into his granddaughter the other day because his son is uh, CEO. I was like, I'm still trying to get your dad to, get me, to allow me into the office. She's like, just show up and tell him you're one of his guests. I was like, yeah, because that's going to work. Hey, yeah. <laughs> what did Gretzky say? You, know, you, you miss all this. You miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. So right. Uh, if, if it was me, I would do it. I, I have these funky vans that I wear when I do keynote speaking engagements, and I wear them because a I love vans, and b because they become a talking point. Right. Like, those are the coolest shoes. Where did you get them? Right. Like, well, you can design anything on vans. Vans.com. And they let you bring in your own canvas designs and make shoes out of them. So we're we're selling vans for them, and they don't need us to. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they're brilliant. I mean, they're just—they're very, very smart. They've been smart. They—they've evolved over the years, and they just keep getting better. And I, I you know, I, like I said before, with um, something else we we're talking about, I imagine, you know, well after we're gone, Vans is still going to be a preeminent uh, shoe wear or fashion or lifestyle, whatever you want to call them, company. Right. You know, as all this comes full circle, you know, you mentioned Stranger Things, and I can't remember the song that just hit number one since 1986. You know, like it hit, yes, thank you. Like it hit in the UK, it didn't hit here, and all of a sudden it's a big hit in the United States. What's one song that you think that was underrated from the time period that you think would be a number one hit today if given a chance? 
Uh, send me an angel, real life. That didn't go number one? Well, no. really? Did not go number one. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and they had to re-release it. So here's what happened yeah. with real life in Send Me an Angel. It was actually released, I believe, in 82 or 83, and it <laughs> went nowhere, really. Uh, it did pretty well in the UK, but right. nowhere here. And what it did well was uh, when it was on the Rad soundtrack, mm-hmm. uh, which is another uh, great movie. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't believe it. I'm pretty sure it did not go to number one. It's one of my favorite movie. Uh, one, sorry, one of my favorite uh, songs. Yeah, I uh, dig it because they also re-released it for Teen Wolf too. It was on that soundtrack. Oh yes, they did. That's yeah. right, they did. I would tell you another one uh, that possibly could go to. Let's see. It says here they the song peaked uh, in the top ten in Australia is their best known song. So uh, another one that would be was hip hop that I think could go could get pretty close to number one would be the Rain by Orange Juice Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that song. I have, yeah. I mean, I think that one would probably just the whole the beat is still. Which I think it's still a great beat, and I think it's a, it's a hilarious song actually. So yes, I think that could go to number one as well. Chris, if we just pick up one chapter, or we just pick up the book raised on the '80s, you know, this third installment, and just flip to one chapter, what's the one lesson from one chapter you want us to pick up? Wow. Uh, whew. That's a good one. I've never been asked that one before. I think I would say, uh, in this day and age, I would say that probably I would I would go with one from The Breakfast Club, the last chapter in the book. We were talking about John Hughes earlier. And it's from Brian Johnson, the you know, the, the, the geek, the nerd, whatever, mm-hmm. Anthony Michael Hall, the smart kid. And uh, they call him the brain, actually, in the note. And I said that just like the ocean, the really cool stuff in human beings is found just beneath the surface. Uh, and I think that's a really important lesson for all of us. I love it. Chris, hang out for a couple of minutes. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit off the record, but where can we find you on social media if we want to connect with you and remind everybody about Raised on the 80s, 30 Unexpected Life Lessons from the Movies and Music that Define Pop Culture's Most Excellent Decade? You know, which stores and where can we pick it up? Thanks. I appreciate it. Yep. So it's on Amazon.com. Uh, paperback Kindle is releasing actually in a couple of days. Um, as we do this interview here on the, what, 17th, October 17th. Uh, just released a couple weeks ago on Amazon paperback. It's at Barnes and Noble online as well. Pretty much anywhere online that sells books, you can find it. Uh, as far as stores, still waiting to get it onto the bookshelves. Hopeful that it will get into some of the bigger, uh, stores, you know, also the independent bookstores, which I love, uh, the independent bookstores as well. So I can keep you posted on, on where we're going with that. And then as far as social media, you can find me, um, at 80s Pop Culture on Twitter which I can't believe that handle was available, but it was. Uh, then Chris Clues 80s on Instagram and uh, Chris Clues on Facebook and LinkedIn. And I, I tell you that I, the vast majority of my time, uh, most of my time is spent on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. I spend some time on Twitter. I'm not as prevalent on Twitter as I am on the other three. Right. Well, and you can find my website, by the way, chrisclues.com, C-L-E-W-S.com. Perfect. Chris Clues, it's been a great pleasure chatting with you. We're going to have a lot to talk about in the coming months and years and especially riding these nostalgia trains. Thanks, RC. I appreciate it, man. Stay rad, everybody.